Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here in the studio with our producer, Ben Zinovich. Get ready to go against the grain. You know, I always say Fridays tend to be a slower news day. That's probably not even actually true, but in all the years that I was working in or on the Middle East, the weekend there is Thursday and Friday. And so Friday's like Sunday for us. So nothing ever happens. And I think that like mentally, I've never readjusted to the fact that Friday's a normal business day. You're so, like, uh, you're like an Orthodox Jew just yeah, waiting for the exactly, <laughs> just waiting. Exactly. Exactly. It is actually very busy today. We are going to talk about some of these crazy news stories that just popped up this morning. Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema of uh, Arizona announced very early this morning at like 5.30 a.m. that she was dropping out of the Democratic Party and was re-registering today as an independent. Um, She didn't go into any real detail, even though she released a a video like uh, claiming to explain her decision. Um, She did say, though, that... Um, that she intends to keep her committee assignments. Now, the only way that she can keep her committee assignments is if she continues to caucus with the Democrats. Yeah. So this would make three independents in the Senate with Bernie Sanders and Angus King being the other two, all of whom would caucus with the Democrats. Still, Democrats are furious that she did this. And a Democratic congressman in Arizona, Ruben Gallegos, has already said that he's going to run for her seat. You mentioned before the, st- the show started, you mentioned to me that um, several of the big unions, AFSCME and the, was it the Teamsters? I believe so. Yeah. At least rank and file there. Yeah. They're saying, let's go. Let's <laughs> go. Let's do it. The Democrats, uh, the, the Democratic um, state committee chair issued a statement minutes after after Cinema uh, dropped out of the party saying that um, that they will primary her if she runs in the Democratic primary and if she runs as an independent, they will nominate a Democrat against her. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the Democratic Party is just catching up to a lot of the progressives within uh, their rank and file, within their voters. Um, people don't really like her, no. at least online. I said on Tuesday I didn't trust her. Yeah, she always seemed as if she prioritized these sort of self-principles of the of the Senate. We need yeah. to protect this parliamentarian that this person that sort of acts in darkness right. nobody knows who it is they don't know their name um we need to respect like the filibuster all of these sort of like things that aren't constitutionally binding right but um somehow take precedence over whether or not um women have a right to uh an abortion or whether or not health care is um expanded mm-hmm. um all of these things that seem to be sort of at least within the base of the Democratic Party, um, key to the interests. But I think uh, the DNC is sort of has has sort of tolerated thus far. Yes. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, the, the Post has quite a long piece, almost as though they were expecting this kind of thing. But they have a long piece today talking about the history of of Senate party switchers. 
And, uh, you know, it goes it goes back over 100 years. Uh, Republicans becoming independents, Democrats becoming independents, Republicans becoming Democrats and vice versa. Uh, there was a progressive party at the beginning of the 20th century for a little while. Robert LaFollette was dancing between all three of those parties. Um, it ends up at the end of the day, usually not making a terrible uh, amount of difference. Mm hmm. Well, my question is always is, are these um, people who leave the party, um, do they remain independent? I know like Angus King and right. uh, Bernie Sanders obviously have like a, a sweet spot where they, they right. sort of can play to the, the more Republican bases in um, Maine and Vermont while still having like this sort of progressive stances. Right. Um, you see Tulsi in the in in like a I mean she's not an elected official currently but right. she she's now an independent but she is definitely taking this more right wing shift definitely um but uh with Robert LaFollette he started the the Farmer Labor Party yes um he was one of the people that fought for a labor party early on so um it's interesting I it, it seems like it's less likely that perhaps a a cinema will create some sort of she could just become a libertarian. It's it's pretty strong yeah. in Arizona, of course. Yeah, that's right. I, that that very well could happen. You know, it's funny too. Uh, a lot of these people who have switched parties over the years. I'm thinking most recently of Arlen Specter in 2009. They do it right at the very tail end of their careers, right? But then there are others like Strom Thurmond, who switched from the Democratic. Uh, party to the Republican Party in 1964, and even earlier when he ran for president in 1948, left the Democrats and created his own party called the Dixiecrats, and then remained as a Democrat until 64. And then uh, what's his face from uh, from Alabama, who just now retired? Um, oh, come on. <laughs> Sorry, I'm blanking. I'm leaving you. I'm blanking. Uh, uh, the senator? Yeah. He, Not Shelby. Shelby, thank okay. you. So he, <laughs> Shelby was elected as a Democrat back in 92 and, and hated Bill Clinton so ferociously that he switched parties in 94 and has remained a Republican all these years. So you never know. You know, I, I had a congressman by the name of uh, Gene Atkinson. Uh, in Western Pennsylvania, and this is the old school Western Pennsylvania where, where, you know, it was a conservative district, but it was a democratic district and Democrats normally got in the, in the area of 65 or 70 percent. Gene Atkinson in, he was elected in 1978 and, um, he endorsed Ted Kennedy for president in 1980 against Jimmy Carter in the democratic primaries. Kennedy, of course, lost. Carter went on to, to lose to Ronald Reagan. And as soon as Reagan won, Gene Atkinson switched parties and became a Republican. But didn't that happen with the um, West Virginia governor? Recently yeah, uh, Justice. After he was Trump elected won. as a Democrat. And when Trump won, he switched to Republicans. And now he's talking about running against Manchin. But, but Gene Atkinson, who got 68 percent in 1980, got 35 percent in 1982. And nobody ever heard of him again. Yeah. I'm looking at his Wikipedia. It's like, uh, <laughs> is he still alive? It's, uh, no, he died in 2016. Oh, okay. Yeah, he was a nice guy. He was a dum dum. Yeah, but he was a nice guy. Uh, there's no controversy uh, segment of the Wikipedia, so that's also good. <laughs> <laughs> We're also going to talk today about Twitter. The second tranche of Twitter files uh, was released last night by former New York Times journalist uh, Barry Weiss. 
in my view, it's even more explosive than the Matt Taibbi tranche. Uh, Elon Musk said that the inmates were running the asylum. And to tell you the truth, that's kind of what it looks like to me. What what these documents have ended up showing is that Twitter had a very robust program to um, to block people, to change the algorithm so that nobody could see their tweets, uh, to to ban people from retweeting or from sharing things. And you had no idea that you were on this blacklist. And that's what they actually called it inside Twitter was a blacklist. So there was one example. It was a a medical school professor from Oregon who said that he believed the COVID vaccine, for example, was dangerous for children under the age of six. And he's not like, you know, a professor of religion, Mm -mm. right? He's a professor of physiology at the University of Oregon School of Medicine. And this poor guy couldn't share anything on Twitter and had no idea he was blocked. It was like a... Elevated level of an elevated banning. secret level of shadow banning. Yeah. And Twitter denied and denied and denied for years that this was happening. And now we see that they were all just liars. Yeah. I mean, we always it's always hard because we always assert shadow like there was no there was no real proof. I think Chris Graffa once mentioned there's no real proof to say shadow banning exists per se. There right. was no real way to say that. That's right. Um. So that's, I think, the other impact of these Twitter files is we we can see right now it's sort of like the opening of the of the um, the archives. You see, actually, there is like premeditated. Oh yeah, uh, like a a direct malicious. Yeah, with with direct intent. Um, one thing that I thought was interesting was Elon um, tried to uh, sort of cozy up to Barry Weiss and right. say like uh, she's she's correct. Like the rules were enforced against the right, but not against the left which I think uh, garners a little bit of a correction because there were people who were suppressed uh, by um, those that were fighting for the liberation of Julian Assange. Yes. People who, um, during, uh, during the 2020 uprisings, people who were calling for no war with Iran and after um, the, uh, the U S drone striked mm-hmm. um, Qasem Soleimani. That's right. Um, uh, the the no more protests um, and the suppression of the hashtags around um, basically peace in Ethiopia, fighting uh, against sort of U.S. intervention there. Um, it, it's definitely real. I mean, we have um, colleagues uh, who are are off Twitter because of this. Yeah, colleagues, close colleagues mm-hmm. who are off Twitter because of this. I think you're exactly right. And, you know, Elon Musk said something that was kind of funny today. Uh, In the New York Post, it says he defended his predecessor, the site's co-founder, Jack Dorsey, who had previously insisted, quote, we don't shadow ban and we certainly don't shadow ban based on political viewpoints. That was absolutely false. But then Musk said today, Jack has a pure heart, in my opinion. Controversial decisions were often made without getting Jack's approval, and he was unaware of systemic bias. I find that extraordinarily hard to believe. No, I mean, uh. Dorsey was pretty, he was a, like on the, on the chopping block. He was on the, he was on the floor of of Twitter at all times. He, he, I I think he had a a deep pulse of what goes on. I agreed. I don't think you can really make this sort of, oh, it's the, like the, 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 well, as, as he says, like the inmates were running the asylum, but maybe Dorsey was one of those inmates. Yeah. (laughs) Right. You know, I was complaining earlier today. I have 
just short of 50,000 Twitter followers. And it is unusual for me to get more than 10 retweets. If 50,000 people are seeing my tweets, then is what I'm saying so unimportant yeah. that it only, it only garners 10 retweets? Well, and has that changed since? Dramatically. Musk? Dramatically. I said something a week ago. I don't even remember what it was. And I had like 1,200 retweets. And I mentioned to Bruce Fine, who consistently gets 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 retweets. I said, my God, I don't know how, how in the world, like he'll say something that's so obscure about the Nigerian, you know, parliamentary elections and he'll get 5,000 retweets. Yeah. It's not because there's not an audience for something. Right. You can find your audience wherever. That's I right. think the major aspect of social media. But well, um, after seeing what happened to Garland Nixon yeah. and others with whom we're, we're friendly, I, I wonder if I was on one of these blacklists. It's. It's a valid question to ask. We're also going to talk today about Sam Bankman-Fried, who I mentioned yesterday is now being called Sam Bankman-Fraud. He agreed, apparently, as crazy as this sounds, to testify before a House investigating committee next week. He did not make a a similar commitment to the Senate uh, uh, version of this House investigating committee. I think he's out of his mind to open his mouth before any committee other than to say on the advice of counsel, I'm going to exercise my fifth amendment right against self-incrimination. I wanted to ask you about that actually. I, cause I was sort of confused why he had a preference for either chamber. Right. I don't get it. There's no, there's I, I, no and he hasn't said reason. the only thing he said, and he tweeted this, which must make his lawyers just go crazy. He said, there's a limit to what I will be able to say, and I won't be as helpful as I would like. (laughs) Well, the the thing is, (laughs) don't say anything unless you intend to implicate yourself. Well, that's clearly the lawyers talking because he was happy to chat. Yeah, happy to chat. Right, right. So we're going to talk about that. We are, wow, we're going to talk about so many different things with our excellent guests. We've got um, Ted Rawl. We're going to talk about all these issues and other domestic issues with Ted Rawl. KJ No is going to update us on uh, Xi Jinping's visit to Saudi Arabia, which now is including all the other GCC, Gulf Cooperation Council member states, as well as the leaders of Iraq and Egypt and Sudan and Palestine and a couple of other places. And then we've got one of my favorite guests. We have Jefferson Morley, who's going to join us at one o'clock to talk about an explosive document that he has recently discovered that indicates that Lee Harvey Oswald was indeed on the CIA's payroll three months before the assassination of John F. Kennedy. So we, we've blocked off a, a nice fat bit of time so we can get to the bottom of this with Jefferson Morley. And then because it's Friday, we have news of the weird. So stay tuned. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take our first short break and come right back. Welcome. 
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Ben Zinovich. I said earlier this week that I didn't expect meaningful legislation to come out of the Senate, despite the fact that Democrats now have a 51 to 49 majority there, because I didn't trust Joe Manson, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Well, early this morning, Kirsten Sinema announced that she was dropping out of the Democratic Party and registering as an independent. She did not say if she would caucus with Democrats or with Republicans, but she did say that she would keep her committee assignments, or at least she wanted to, which is not entirely up to her unless she does stay with the Democrats. Democrats predictably are furious, and they jumped on the news by saying that they would primary Sinema if she decides to run for re-election in 2024 as a Democrat, and even if she doesn't and runs as an independent, they're still going to field a candidate against her. Polls have shown that Sinema is popular among independents, She's not so popular among Democrats, and she's very unpopular among Republicans. So she's in for a heap of trouble. Brittany Griner this morning landed in San Antonio, Texas to rejoin her family after being released by the Russian government. She literally walked past Victor Boot on the tarmac uh, at Dubai Airport. Victor Boot was released by the U.S. government as part of this prisoner exchange. Republicans are criticizing Joe Biden for the fact that another American prisoner, Paul Whelan, was not released, but Secretary of State Tony Blinken said late last night that the choice was simply one or none, and that the Russian government was not willing to discuss Whelan. As workers at a battery factory in Ohio voted to unionize yesterday, tech workers elsewhere across the country are facing the loss of their jobs. Microsoft, Apple, Twitter, and Meta, just to name a few, have said that they will lay off thousands of tech workers. Tens of thousands more are being laid off at smaller firms nationwide. This is causing a particular crunch among foreign workers. If they lose their jobs and they can't find another similar job almost immediately, they face deportation. That could cause a serious, if inadvertent, brain drain in the U.S. tech industry. And the Justice Department is asking a federal judge to hold former President Donald Trump and his team of attorneys in contempt of court today. A federal grand jury in May mandated that Trump and his team turn over all classified documents in their possession to the Justice Department. Not only have they not done that, but this this is the rub right here. The attorneys filed formal attestations that there were no classified documents in Trump's possession, something that has proven to be demonstrably false. We're joined by Ted Rawl, an award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. His latest book is called The Stringer, and he's co-host of the DMZ America podcast with Ted Rawl and Scott Stantis. Thanks for bailing us out, Ted. (laughs) Anytime, John. (laughs) Good to have you back. Many of us, Ted, were shocked but not surprised, as the saying goes, that Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema had quit the Democratic Party. At first glance, this is a very big deal, and it shows just how important Raphael Warnock's reelection was uh, earlier this week in that Georgia runoff, for, at least for the Democrats. But on the other hand, Sinema said that she wants to keep her committee assignments, and the only way to do that is to continue caucusing with the Democrats. So first, what does this move mean for the Democrats over the next two years? And second, if major legislation is unlikely, what impact, if any, Will this uh, move have in the Senate? Uh, well, you know, it is. It is. It codifies kind of what we already knew, right? I mean, it wasn't really a fifty a Democrat. A 50, there weren't fifty Democratic senators. There were forty-eight Democratic That's senators. Right. 
plus Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. That's right. Now, uh, all this does is is make officially official what we already knew. She says her votes aren't going to change. You know, let's just say I, we believe her. Um, you know, I'm going to just just editorialize a bit and say, man, this is a a, a pretty mean move. I mean, the Democrats literally got to 51 two days ago. <laughs> And and now she's like she's just sucking the wind out of their sail. I kind of think there must be some animus from her toward the Democratic Party for her to do that. Seems that either way. that because either that or she's spoiling for a fight that is going to be worse than it needed to be just because of the timing. I mean, she could have done this a year from now, uh, and it would have not been as uh, big a deal. Um, I don't think it's going to change. Uh, the Biden administration's, uh, you know, the fact that they're facing gridlock yeah. uh, going forward, uh, I don't think that's going to change one th- one bit. Um, it is going to make the ju- the question of judicial nominations uh, trickier, right? Because there was a one vote kind of, you know, uh, very slight. Uh, bit of uh, wiggle room, right? I mean, a, a little a barrier that you know, if if someone got sick or someone had a family issue or couldn't show up for a roll call vote, right? Uh, you know, you you had you could go to fifty, but now it's you know again, you know, every every man, every woman is needed on deck for every important vote. So it's it's tricky for the Democrats, but I mean, look, they're not going to get anything done uh, anyway. They they've lost control of the House. They don't have a supermajority in the Senate. Um, the you know I, I think the Biden administration is facing the White House is going to be defending itself against investigations over the Hunter Biden laptop and other issues. So you know it'll just be it, it's it's gridlock of a different color maybe. Yeah, it sure seems that way. Uh, Brittany Griner and Victor Boot are back in their respective homes, but Paul Whelan is not. Secretary of State Tony Blinken made a very provocative statement last night. He said that negotiations with the Russians are not really negotiations. He said the Russians go into these talks with a position of one for one, and that was it. The U.S. could either have Griner or they could have nothing. That seems to be a hardline attitude. With that in mind, do you expect any movement at all on other prisoners, including Paul Whelan? Because isn't this what foreign ministries do? They constantly stay in touch on issues like this? Well, obviously, Russian-U.S. relations are at a, uh, a nadir, to say the least, at Indeed. this point. Um, and, uh, but, Pre- you know, President Putin is in uh, attending a conference in Central Asia, in Kyrgyzstan, and he said that uh, he, he thinks that there's going to be the, certainly the possibility, the openness to future prisoner exchanges. I, you know, I'm, I've read a lot about the Whelan case, and I think you know the, the Griner was an easy lift for the Russian government. They, yeah. You know, he she didn't by all. I mean, she was beloved in Russia. She she played in Russia. She likes Russia. She had never said anything bad about Russia, and and everybody kind of believes her story, which was this was just a, a mistake. She wasn't a smuggler. She just sort of was in a hurry when she was packing her bags, and something that was legal in the states uh, came with her and was not legal as soon as she uh, you know got to Shermativo Airport. So. I think, um, you know, it was we, you know, everyone in, in Russia as well kind of is like, well, you know, it's a it was a woman who made a stupid mistake, you know, a relatively minor mistake with big consequences. Paul Whelan, you know, there's something about this case. I'm speculating, but he doesn't feel 
pure as the driven snow to me. Well, uh, you know what? I'm glad if I could interrupt you for a second. I'm very glad to hear you say that. I didn't know anything about Paul, Paul Whelan until this morning when I saw that Paul Whelan was born a dual Canadian British citizen. He attained U.S. citizenship by joining the Marine Corps, something that the Republicans voted unanimously to ban from happening day before yesterday. He was given a dishonorable discharge from the Marine Corps after having been convicted on six felony counts, including wire fraud, mail fraud, um, identity theft, larceny, all kind of making false statements, six felonies. And then we've got half of the Republican uh, members of the Senate saying today, we left behind a Marine on the battlefield. And instead, we took a woman who took a knee during the national anthem. It's like people. First of all, Paul Whelan was arrested when Donald Trump was president. And Donald Trump did literally nothing to get that guy out. And now you're saying we left a Marine on the battlefield. No, actually, we didn't leave a Marine on the battlefield. So go ahead. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, um, it's pure speculation. I think Whelan, uh, you know, was somehow guilty of some sort of espionage, and the Russians have him dead to rights, and they know it. And uh, and for for them, he is. It's going to take a lot more to get. You know, they're going to want something really tasty in return to let him go. Uh, and they're so he's if they're going to let him go at all. I think it's just a really heavy lift for uh for president putin to exchange him just one for one uh yeah. it's, uh, i think you know i mean it just it seemed to me like he was up to no good this was not a there's no comparison i mean right. you know uh, uh you know grinds is a, is a woman who did something stupid uh, you know by american standards a very minor crime although 20 years ago it wouldn't have been um, and, uh, you know, it's, and, and probably in Russia in 10 years, this won't be a crime, but like, you know, yeah. it's, it, you know, th these drug laws are, are transitioning all over the, you know, all over the Western world. Uh, they're liberalizing. So yes. it's just a different, it, it's apples and oranges. It, I, I agree with you. And, you know, there, there are certainly other Americans who are imprisoned in Russia, uh, whose names just are not a part of this conversation. And uh, we know that the Russians are interested in having the Germans release a, a former colonel who uh, was convicted on a murder charge. So this this can get very complicated very quickly. And I suspect that so long as there's a conflict in Ukraine, we're not going to see much more in the way of prisoner exchanges. Maybe once that's done, people can sit across from the table across the table from one another and, uh, and actually negotiate something. We'll see. So I wanted to ask you also about uh, uh, the economy. Economists and prognosticators are in some disagreement right now over whether or not we are headed into a recession. Whether we are or not, we're starting to see significant layoffs in the tech industry. The biggest names in tech are either in upheaval, like Twitter, it's a state of chaos, or are initiating huge layoffs. What does this mean for the economy overall, do you think? And what does it mean in terms of an inevitable brain drain where the best and the brightest from places like India and China and Eastern Europe who work in Silicon Valley could be forced to return to their countries? Well, I mean, the economy is clearly uh, coming in for some sort of landing. And the question is, will it be uh, a soft or will it be a, uh, you know, a rough, bumpy landing? Uh, I think, you know, look, oil prices are dropping. 
that's kind of a, a sign the real estate market has pretty much collapsed. Uh, that's yeah, it has. The way, that's the way the, the, the national realtors groups look at it. And, you know, I, I've looked at, at, real, at listings and, you know, it just seems to have died. Um, I, I think the thing is that um, it's hard to say. It feels like it's going to be a relatively minor recession. And I don't mean to be glib when people are losing their jobs. It's never good, even if when it's one person and it's you, it really sucks. But I, I don't think it's going to be, it doesn't feel at this point like it's going to be catastrophic. The tech sector, I think, is has a symbolic resonance way above its economic impact in the United States. I mean, I remember reading about how General Motors alone, between the company itself and its suppliers directly or indirectly employs 2 million workers. Uh, it has a market capitalization less than a third of Facebook. But Facebook employs like around 100,000 people, or it did before these, these, layoffs, these layoffs. So you've got these huge market caps, but basically Silicon Valley, uh, these companies are not really uh, job generation machines. They're really cash extraction machines. Apple hardly employs anybody. And uh, and the and the amount the tens of billions of dollars that are sucked out of the economy, much of which ends up in like the Caymans, yeah, uh, in, in in numbered accounts, uh, you know, and not benefiting American workers is vast. So I think you know, look, it's it's going to be rough. I don't think you know, tech obviously is important to be a forward-looking, advanced economy, especially since we've deindustrialized so dramatically. But in terms of like, you know, oh, Mike, oh, woe is us, you know, all these tech workers are out of work, uh, you know, that's going to have a ripple effect. I don't really think so, because tech doesn't really employ that many people. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Ted, the, the Justice Department is asking a federal judge, Beryl Howell, who's actually very highly respected, to hold former President Donald Trump in contempt of court. He said that Trump's attorneys have falsely attested that Trump was not in possession of any classified documents when they knew that he was in possession of classified documents. Their statement, which is, you know, a formal legal document, uh, was demonstrably false. Is this kind of contempt the same as what we saw earlier this year with the likes of Steve Bannon and Rudy Giuliani? Will this be settled by a fine or is Trump in trouble here? What's his exposure? And is this enough to have his attorneys thrown off this case or perhaps even disciplined? Uh, you know, so I think this is a political more than a legal mm. question. Um, you know, I mean, certainly legally, it, it looks like the, uh, you know, to use the term dead to rights twice in the same segment. I'm going to say that it looks like, you know, they, they, these lawyers are, you know, have been nailed dead to rights for perjury. Uh, but that said, they are lawyers. And uh, the, the legal system uh, is, I, th I think many people uh, would, view, would view it as in peril if, uh, you know, nailing lawyers uh, starts to become a normal thing. Now, we've seen that with Trump's lawyers in the past um, who've been uh, prosecuted and, and had to cut plea deals, but they're still lawyers. So, it, it, you know, I think it would be it's kind of like the reluctance of the system to nail cops, but more so uh, there. I think there's a general desire to slap them on the wrist to send the message that it's not okay, but sending you know perp walking attorneys into <laughs> into the Gray Bar Hotel really uh, you know I I mean they can do it but it's like it's it's, it's that whole question like 
here's what you can do. And then there's what's a good idea. And for society, and this doesn't seem like a good society, a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a political question or two for you. A new poll was released this morning by NBC News showing that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is seen favorably by 89% of Republicans. Donald Trump is seen favorably by 74% of Republicans. That's a huge spread. It's a huge difference between the two of them. NBC's chief pollster said this morning that DeSantis has told confidants that he would not run against Trump unless the polling changed. Well, the polling has changed. And although some national polls, which matter less than the polls of individual states, show that Trump is still leading DeSantis, and it's something like 45 to 40 now is the the last number that I saw. Trump is not out there doing rallies. He's not crisscrossing the country campaigning. He's just staying home at Mar-a-Lago and and writing uh, posts on Truth. Truth Social. And DeSantis is sitting on a mountain of campaign money. He has $200 million that he raised for his gubernatorial reelection that the Federal Election Commission has said that he can transfer to a presidential campaign committee. Okay, so what does all of this mean for the upcoming Republican primaries, which actually are going to start in just 13 short months? Do any other candidates within the Republican Party matter right now besides Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis? Oh, absolutely. Cool. Quite a few of them matter. I mean, I think, huh. uh, you know, we are looking at a repeat of 2016. I mean, basically, when Donald Trump came down that escalator, uh, he had 30 percent of the Republican vote. And because he ran against more than one or two rivals, the, uh, the, the rivals, you know, I think they're, I think they're at one point there were uh, 17 of them. Um, if he, they split the they split the anti-Trump vote. Right. If they could have all gotten together and said, you know, you can be secretary of transportation, you could do this and that. They you know, and you know, only one of us runs. They could have they could have defeated Trump. Uh, that's what Trump. I think that's Trump's chance. Look, you mentioned the I would take I would pit. Trump's 74 percent against DeSantis's 89 percent anytime, because that 74 percent is adoring, loving. Yes. They would shoot Deeply someone on committed. Fifth Avenue for him. They will. They buy the flags. They 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 put up with the the neighbors who hate them uh, you know, for flying the flags. Uh, they'll do anything for this man. Ron, you know, it's it's it, Ron DeSantis's support is new and thin and you know he's he's the new girl at the at the prom and everyone wants to look at him and and look and dance and but like do you know do you want to take her home maybe so uh, i think you know desantis hasn't scaled nationally yet uh you know it's he i think he's really the the establishment media candidate that is the anti-Trump, you know, the net for the never Trumpers. But there's others out there. I mean, I don't think Rubio, uh, Cruz, uh, Lynn Cheney have given up the dream. And uh, it's, it's Liz Cheney, sorry. Um, she, I, I know, I think Liz Cheney really desperately wants to run. You know, if she doesn't get that MSNBC contract deal nailed down. What else is she going to do right. next year? So um, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of vultures circling. And all Trump needs, and he doesn't have 30% of the Republican vote now, he has 45% of it. So all he needs is to have two or three or more opponents. They'd split up the vote. He walks to the nomination again. 
Yes, which is what happened in 2016. Yeah, and I I kind of was wondering about. I mean, I I'm I think of sort of the 2019 uh, Democratic primary in which they had a similar sort of fielding of candidates, um, and like 63 percent of people said that I have 70 uh, several candidates that I feel um, excited about. Some of those people were, of course, uh, Elizabeth Warren with 80 percent. Harris had 78 percent. And then when the the votes are actually counted, yes. I think Harris in, in the entirety of the primary got maybe less than a thousand votes. Oh, yeah. All in, in across any state <laughs> that she I don't ran in. I even think she made it to the Iowa caucus. I mean, she was yeah, on the ballot yeah. in a couple of, of, of states. She got 0.6 percent of the vote. Yeah. Is that what it was? Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. So I guess also I'm wondering, is the is a wide field um, as beneficial to Trump um, in the GOP primary as it was in 2016? Or or does this sort of it, it is could DeSantis be another Jeb? It, could he could he be like a, a serious sort of challenger? Oh, good question. Um, could he maybe sort of act as a as an Elizabeth Warren pulling this sort of uh, uh America first vote away from Florida um, and give it to a more establishment type like Liz Cheney um, that would be sweep in. I mean, I think, you know, it's it's Jeb with two exclamation marks instead of one uh, <laughs> for people who remember the, the, yeah. the slogan. Uh, you know, I mean, he's I think he, I maintain that he's running for vice president. Uh, I, I think that he wants to be Trump's veep. Whoever's Trump's veep, well, if whether you're Trump's veep or Biden's veep, there's a strong chance you'll get to be president, uh, you know, due to the age factor. So it's a it's a very appealing job right now. And um, I, I, I think that's what he's after. Uh, you know, I drive across this country a lot. And the support that you see for Trump is just so fanatic. Those people do not care. Republican primary voters do not care about this scuttlebutt about Ron DeSantis. They're like, they know there's this other guy. And if Trump dropped dead or dropped out of the race, you know, there would be a whole bigger conversation about Ron DeSantis. But as long, but Trump's still the king. And, you, you know, they haven't deposed the king yet. Yeah, that's absolutely right. We are going to leave it there. We were happy to be joined by Ted Rawl. He is an award-winning Political cartoonist, columnist, and author. His latest book is The Stringer, and he's co-host of the DMZ America podcast with Ted Rawl and Scott Stantis. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a quick break and come back with our next guest. Stay tuned. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you the news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Ben Zinovich, here with John Kiriakou. Chinese President Xi Jinping received a hero's welcome in Riyadh yesterday on his first visit to Saudi Arabia in seven years. We told you on the show yesterday that Xi and Saudi Crown Prince Prince Mohammed bin Salman, in just their first few hours together, signed a number of economic, trade, and investment agreements. Today, she met with the leaders of other Gulf Cooperation Council countries, such as Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, Oman, and the UAE. She also held talks in Riyadh with the leaders of Egypt, Iraq, Sudan, and Palestine. 
GCC leaders complained that the United States seems to have turned its attention away from the region after the U.S. withdrawal from Iraq and Afghanistan, and that the future of GCC business development lies in partnership with China. U.S. and Chinese diplomats met virtually yesterday to discuss North Korea's ballistic missile program. The North Koreans have fired 63 ballistic missiles so far this year, <laughs> including eight intercontinental ballistic missiles, actions that the U.S. sees as a grave threat. The U.S. representative, Sung Kim, said that the U.S. appreciates China's strategic geographic location, as well as the former diplomatic ties that China has with uh, North Korea. Today, South Korean trucker unions voted to end their strike, demanding an increase in the minimum wage and that a minimum pay system be made permanent and expanded in scope. After three weeks, 62% of workers voted to end the strike amid strike-busting tactics that the Korean Confederation of Trade Unions considered as a virtual so-called re-imposition of martial law. We're joined uh, to discuss all of this uh, by K.J. No. K.J. is a scholar, educator, and journalist focusing on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia-Pacific. He is also a member of Veterans for Peace. K.J., great to have you. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Let's begin with Xi Jinping's trip to Riyadh that began this week. In comparison to the fist bump that Joe Biden received on his trip to Riyadh, Xi's trip truly shows the lengths of how the Saudis can pull out the so-called purple carpet, um, one that is really only afforded typically by the Saudi monarchy itself. Um, in, in, a, in, a, uh, in addition to that, you have Saudi jet fighter pilots who are, are, are Western trained. They're painting the sky red and yellow as the Chinese president landed. Um, what do you make of this stark difference in Saudi hospitality seen between Biden and Xi's visits? Well, I think it's unmistakable. I mean, you know, Joe Biden got a, a fist bump and a cold shoulder. And here you see the entire apparatus of pageantry rolled out. Uh, no expense has been spared. Uh, you know, it's a red carpet everywhere, or rather a purple carpet. But you know, I, I just want to give an analogy. It's a little bit like the difference between a wedding and a tryst. You know, there, there are no guarantees. But when somebody spends incredible amounts of money on a wedding, it signals some kind of public commitment. And I think we can see that in the GCC meetings. You know, the what, uh, as you mentioned, $29 billion in contracts signed. Uh, you know, all the Gulf states uh, meeting with uh, Xi Jinping uh, and, you know, this kind of mutual respect, mutual win-win cooperation, this commitment to win-win cooperation and the development of the, um, the Belt and Road. So I think this is a new milestone or a new turning point in China's relationship with the Gulf states and the Arab states. And uh, once again, I want to emphasize there that China traditionally always has had good relations with the Arab world. It's never had uh, any serious conflicts. It's always had a strong respect for Islamic culture and the Islamic world and its Islamic neighbors. Uh, the only anti-Islamic wars that ever happened in China were actually intra-religious wars between different factions of Islam. And it's always had a strong and principal support of Palestine. I think that brings tremendous credibility along with the fact that, you know, there's some really genuine win-win cooperation happening, for example, between Saudi Aramco and Sinopec in China itself. 
and then all the construction and energy, uh, sustainable energy development work that China will be doing uh, for Saudi Arabia. So it's really kind of a turning point, and it's a very, very strong contrast, as you point out, with uh, Saudi Arabia's current relations with the United States. Yeah, I, I think that that's really key is that it's not necessarily a, a shift in politics, but a reaffirmation of a long time uh, historical relationship between um, the Arabic nations and China. Um, but yes, uh, moving moving domestically into China, um, this week we saw that uh, the Chinese government rolled back rules on isolating people with COVID and dropped certain virus test requirements for some public places this week. Um, many in the West understood this to be a response to recent demonstrations in many Chinese cities. Um, so where does COVID zero, st- uh, zero COVID, excuse me, stand currently? And do we have a pulse on how Chinese citizens feel about the government's treatment of COVID currently? Well, I think the most recent polls show that 85% of the Chinese population actually support the uh, strong COVID measures. Uh, up to and including uh, lockdown. So uh, I think it's a little bit misleading to think that just because we have uh, you know, a few hundred people demonstrating in a few scattered cities, um, that you know, all of a sudden that the Chinese are you know, up in arms and want to bring down their government because of you know, these uh, draconian COVID policies. I think the Chinese understand what the situation is, and all of this has been played out of Uh, exaggerated in the Western mainstream media. But just to kind of go back over the basics, you know, two weeks before the fire in Urumqi, the Chinese had already uh, were starting to adjust the zero COVID measures, the dynamic zero COVID. So that was their 10th policy adjustment uh, in this process. And they released another, you know, uh, 10 measures. Uh, And these were all measures that were going to slowly uh, transition into a more uh, into into a much more uh, flexible way of dealing with COVID. Now, the key thing to understand here is that China's leadership, uh, and this some most people don't know, is almost all scientists and engineers. For example, Xi Jinping is a chemical engineer, and Jiang Zemin, who recently died, was an elect- electrical engineer. So they're all scientists and engineers, and they think scientifically. And what they do, and this is this is systematic policies. They create trial spots where they test something in one small area. If it works, then they try and replicate the results in another area. And then if it uh, works again, they expand and they scale up. And this is exactly what they have been doing with COVID over, you know, many weeks and months. <clears throat> and this is part of, you know, the kind of systems theoretic thinking that they bring to all policy issues. But uh, essentially, uh, they have, uh, you know, uh, lifted or softened uh, the COVID restrictions, and they've sent out teams of medical experts to various regions and cities to help this uh, to help the cities implement them. Because without that kind of guidance, I think that the regions or the localities were implementing them in a rather blind or uh, unsubtle fashion. So they're getting that support and response. And I think over the long term, as China continues to improve its vaccination rates, and also because it considers the current variations to be less, uh, you know, less dangerous, uh, I think that the Chinese will carefully 
but uh, you know, cautiously manage uh, this uh, transition. And uh, one of the things that will probably help is the fact that they're preparing uh, an oral vaccine. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that all of that is really important to highlight, especially with uh, the fact that while in the United States, um, I mean, set aside the fact that, again, millions died to a, a what I believe is a preventable um, pandemic, uh, it, 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 the, the response to the United States at most was a, a lockdown where a couple businesses shut down. There was it was very lopsided per state and uh, the the. Uh, the the virus was allowed to become endemic and and create multiple more variants. Whereas China, it's the, while people call it zero COVID, it's a it's more of a method of consistently applying things that work and reanalyzing things that don't. Um, so I think you're, I think it's really important that you you highlight that that it is sort of a a a uh, continual process of um, examining things scientifically and amending it um, if need be. Um, I wanted to turn to the Korean Peninsula. Um, so, South Korean president ha- uh, South Korean president has said this week that Seoul must uh, quote perfectly overwhelm North Korea in conventional military strength, even if the North may be armed with nuclear weapons. Meanwhile, Pyongyang has fired uh, artillery and ballistic missiles into waters near South Korea and Japan in the context of ongoing U.S. South Korea live fire drills in an inland border region. Uh, what is it that Pyongyang and Seoul seek from these escalations? Where does the U.S.-South Korea cooperation fit into this? And what do you expect to see in Korea regarding military escalations moving forward? Well, I expect to see more escalation because uh, Yoon Seok-yeol, the current president, he ran on a platform of preemptive strikes, preemptive nuclear strikes against North Korea. I've said in the past that Yoon Seok-yeol is a cross between J. Edgar Hoover, uh, John Bolton, and Donald Trump. And I think he's, you know, I think he's making good on, on that prediction. But South Korea already has something called uh, the KMPR, Korea Massive Punishment and Retaliation Program, and it is just this most incredibly um, aggressive, uh, you know, uh, uh, military uh, policy towards North Korea. And just to, you know, kind of go back into the history a little bit, you know, North Korea was bombed into the Stone Age, and I mean literally the Stone Age. It's, North Korea is one-eightieth the size of the United States, but the United States dropped more than the entire tonnage of bombs dropped in the Pacific uh, theater onto North Korea, killing off, what, one out of five, one out of three people in North Korea. And so... What happens in the current moment is every few months, and in this current moment, continuously since August, there are these military exercises that are designed to re-trigger North Korea's collective PTSD. North Korea's approach to that is to fight back because it understands that the best way to prevent from being re-traumatized is actually to take action, to fight. And so one of the things they do is when these large military exercises that involve strategic weapons or, uh, you know, strategic bombers uh, uh, are, are done right up against their doorstep, uh, then what they do is they usually fire missiles. Sometimes they test bombs, but usually they fire 
missiles uh, or uh, armaments of some sort. And uh, from a tactical standpoint, it actually makes a lot of sense because there's no way for North Korea to distinguish between a real and false attack being prepared by the United States. But if they fire uh, missiles, then if this were a real attack, those attacks would immediately draw counter-battery fire. So it's in a certain way, it's a way of kind of uh, checking out, you know, how serious these uh, military drills are. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a very costly way to do that. But you know, North Koreans have very little choice. You know, they're one of the poorest countries on the planet. The North Korean military budget is $4 billion. That's less than the New York uh, City Police Department budget. And so they have to do what they can in order to exist because they have always faced existential annihilation, threatened multiple times with an annihilation by the United States. This is just more of the same by Yun Seo-yeol, who is simply uh, doing the bidding or going along with the program on the part of the United States. I mentioned at the beginning of this uh, segment that South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol's policies have been claimed to be akin to martial law. South Koreans know martial law pretty well. Despite being seen as the ally of the United States and a base of democracy in the Korean peninsula, leaders such as Syngman Rhee, Park Chung-hee, and Chun Doo-hwan carried out severe and harsh rule uh, for the large uh, portions of, um, of the 20th century. The National Security Act by the Seoul government has also made it significantly difficult for trade unions and progressive organizations to exist and function in the South since its enactment. So where does President Yoon Suk-yeol fit into this history of anti-union and right-wing dictatorships? And what do you make of the current health of Korean trade unions in the South? Well, I would say that Korean trade unions are moribund, and they're really, really struggling because of the current administration's approach to them. They've ordered these truckers, the Truck Soul um, uh, Union, which is part of the KCTU and the KPTU, they've ordered them back to work uh, on threat of prison, uh, that they could be put in prison for three years pay 30 million won in fines and lose their license. So this particular union has decided to go back to work. Of the 26,000 union members, uh, about 3,000 cast a vote, 3,500 cast a vote. uh, And of that, 61% agreed to go back to work. But you can see that the vast majority, over 80%, didn't even bother to vote because they, I think they see themselves as heading back into martial law. That's how they frame it. The Yoon Suk-yeol government compared the strike to the North Korean nuclear threat. They said, and the uh, PPT, Yoon Suk-yeol's party, uh, compared it, said that this was incitement to the destruction of the South Korean state and that these truckers were sympathetic to North Korea, that they were literally, quote, the second battalion of the Workers' Party of North Korea. So this sense, this uh, this rhetoric gives you a sense of how uh, Yoon Suk-yeol and his uh, government is positioning itself vis-a-vis these uh, truckers and unions in general. And that ties back into this Yoon Suk-yeol government's uh, attitude towards the law. The PPP itself is the inheritor 
of the Park jung dictatorship. They are the same party. They've simply rebranded themselves. So they're simply a continuation of these dictatorships. And uh, Yoon seok yeol has said, uh, when he ran for president, you know, he said that he would create a republic of prosecutors. And he's, you know, having a scorched earth strategy to all unions and to all of his all of his um, opponents. I'm so sorry that we're out of uh, time right here at the top of the hour. That was the voice of KJ No, a scholar, educator, and journalist focusing on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia Pacific and also a member of Veterans for Peace. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a break for the top of the hour and come right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here with Ben Zinovich. I almost said Michelle Witte. Perhaps the greatest mystery of the past century is who killed President John F. Kennedy. Was Lee Harvey Oswald a lone gunman? Was the president's assassination a conspiracy that involved one or more of the CIA, the FBI, the mafia, the military, the Russians, the Cubans? or even then-Vice President Lyndon Johnson? Why was one of Kennedy's main political rivals, Alan Dulles, leading the investigation around his assassination? Every five or ten years, Congress demands that the CIA declassify and release a tranche of documents, and with the great hope among the public that more light would be shed on one of the most infamous crimes in American history, we are invariably disappointed. Many of us hang on films and documentaries by the likes of Oliver Stone to explain the many twists and turns in what has become a never-ending investigation. But now, historian Jefferson Morley, one of the leading experts in the world of the Kennedy assassination, has found some absolutely explosive information. He has learned that the CIA has smoking gun documents that show that accused assassin Lee Harvey Oswald was on the CIA payroll and involved in a CIA operation three months before President Kennedy was killed. We are joined by Jefferson Morley. He is a journalist, author, and the editor of the JFK Facts blog. His latest book is called Scorpion's Dance, The President, The Spymaster, and Watergate. Jeff, are you with us? I am. Yes, he is. Thanks for having me. Oh, this is so exciting. I've been looking forward to this for such a long time. Um, wow, we're very pleased to have you, Jeff. It's been a long time. You made international news earlier this week with reports that the CIA is in possession of these smoking gun documents about the Kennedy assassination. First, tell us what these documents say, what they mean, and how you became aware of their existence. Okay, first, let me just make one little correction to what okay. you said at the top. I am not saying that these documents show that Lee Harvey Oswald was on the CIA payroll. Okay. He, he was an object. He was a person of interest. To the CIA. By CIA officers. That's not Got the it. same as being on the payroll. You're right. I want, to be very, I want to be very clear. You're right. And that's actually a pet peeve of mine because friends of mine accuse lots and lots of people of being 
agents of the CIA. And, and I always tell them that's, that's a very specific accusation or comment. It actually has very specific meaning in the world of intelligence. So thanks for setting me straight on that. Yeah. So, so these are documents that, um, uh, are known to exist. I sought them in a freedom of information act lawsuit and was not able to get access to them. But the document, what the, what the documents show is the CIA's the interest of certain CIA officers in Oswald throughout 1963, the second half of 1963. The, the attention of these men goes to Oswald and to the organization which he professed to belong, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which was a popular kind of leftist group with chapters in many cities that was active on behalf of the Cuban Revolution. And it's important to understand part of the backdrop of this story is that notorious thing known as COINTELPRO. That's right. Okay, so the, the documents that I'm seeking describe a COINTELPRO-like operation. COINTELPRO was a, just so people know, was a joint CIA-FBI program to harass and disrupt organizations and people who had been identified formally by the U.S. government as subversive. And so this was the tool that the government used to go after people like, you know, Martin Luther King, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and the Socialist Workers Party, and the Ban the Bomb people in the 1960s, kind of left liberal groups were the target of official harassment. Well, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, we now know, was a target for that kind of harassment by the CIA in the fall of 1963. So the documents that I'm talking about are documents about the CIA's counterintelligence interest in Lee Harvey Oswald in that summer and fall. They were using him for intelligence purposes. Now, you know, like what was really going on? You know, that's very hard to tell, but clearly there's a significant story here. And because these records are so highly classified, like these, these records are, what what they what they say in the business is denied in full, right? Mm-hmm. Right, denied in full. Yes, we are not allowed to see anything. Like some documents are redacted, and you can see who wrote it. You know, and there's then there's a paragraph missing, and then you can see who signed. You know, that sort of thing. We have none of that on these records, so we're we're flying blind a little bit about what the purpose of it was beyond, you know, harassing, infiltrating, disrupting, watching the fair play for Cuba committee. Did did uh, did Oswald know that he was being targeted or being used, or is there any indication that he was aware of what was going on at a at a higher level with the Fair Play for Cuba committee? Well, I, I would respond in two ways. I mean, Oswald was self taught, very smart guy. Yeah. Um, although you know, not book learning, but a, a kind of an autodidact, a good natural intelligence. When he went to Russia, he spoke Russian fluently. Yes. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, Oswald, he was a, and he was a schemer. So I think he knew that he was, you know, scheming with people. And certainly on the day of the assassination, he acts like he has guilty knowledge. And when he said, when he said on the day of, after his arrest, I didn't do it. I'm a patsy. I'm a patsy. Mm-hmm. That, that also implies some level of involvement with what was going on. And that level of involvement was you know, that was why he was killed, you know, so that he couldn't talk about that. But 
Yes, Oswald moved in this world of intelligence with CIA assets, making contact with CIA assets frequently in late 1963. So, you know, he was he had his own purposes and goals, but he was, you know, he was being watched. He was being manipulated for intelligence purposes. Yeah, I, I in your work, I think you're very careful to avoid getting lost in the weeds of the sort of minutia of maybe like the conspiracy, uh, the sort of what the so-called conspiracy community. Um, you approach, I think, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy with a macro lens. Um, many times you mentioned that while much is unknown, a good launching point for the investigation is that Kennedy was killed by his enemies, and these enemies were powerful enough, influential enough, or resourceful enough to cover their tracks. While many may find it, you know, entertaining or captivating to get knee-deep in theories regarding secret service agents, the umbrella man, or what have you, what's the utility of approaching it from this wider framing? Well, first of all, you know, I mean... Conspiracy theories is, is a weird way to look at, at history, you know, to say, oh, you know, let's look and there must be a conspiracy. So let's plug in facts to support the theory. My approach was much more journalistic when I got into this story. I, my approach was what's new? What have we learned recently right. that we didn't know before? And then, you know, what was the information that we knew before that is wrong? You know, and that's just journalism 101, the new facts at the top. The old facts are in context below that. And you correct yourself when you make a mistake. So if you do that, then you begin to look at the Kennedy assassination in the context that it took place. And what I always focused on was CIA operations, not because I thought the CIA did it and I was out to prove the CIA did it, theory, but to understand how CIA operations worked at that time and how did the Oswald story fit into it. And that's what that's what we are now getting more clarity about was how did the CIA focus on this guy? Because they definitely focused on him and their interest level rises in 1963. You know, people say, oh, this guy was a lone nut and, you know, nobody paid attention to him. And who cares? You know, how could we have known he was going to shoot the president? Well, there's nothing like that in the CIA paper trail on Oswald before the assassination. Nobody ever said this guy's not of interest. You know, we, we don't need to know about him. Get lost. That never happens in the course of the four years that the CIA is watching him. They were very interested in him. That's clear now. So what was the nature of that interest? You know, that's what the, C, that's what the CIA is holding on to. And that's why they're holding on to all these documents now at the end, right? Because there's some stuff that they just don't want to give up. Well, I want to ask you about that. You know, the conventional wisdom is that there are still tens of thousands of additional CIA documents out there that still exist. They're still classified. They're still in the possession of the CIA. Uh, Congress has mandated that all of those documents be released. And in fact, Ben reminded me this morning that the congressional vote was unanimous that the CIA released these documents. Why hasn't that happened? That's a very good question. Let me just again correct one small point of fact. Okay. There's 16,000 U.S. government documents about JFK's assassination that still contain redaction, okay? That doesn't mean there's 16,000 documents that are totally top secret. Okay. The records I'm talking about, yes, those are top secret, but that's a tiny minority okay. of the documents that are in play today. Uh-huh. Most of them are substantially released. You know, you might have a paragraph, sometimes a page redacted. Sure. You know, so they're still heavily redacted. Most of those 16,000 documents, more than 11,000, are CIA documents. And those documents are, 
in their both classified and declassified form in the possession of the National Archives in Washington, D.C. So that's the, the universe of records that's up for play. Now, in 1992, yeah, Congress passes this law unanimously after Oliver Stone's movie comes out. And right. everybody says, oh, Oliver Stone, you bad boy, you're blaming the government. And Oliver Stone replied with a very devastating reply, which is, if you have nothing to hide, why are you hiding so much? Yeah. And, and 95% of the government's records on the assassination were secret. At that point, 30 years after the assassination, supposedly by one unimportant guy. You know, so Stone really capitalized on, like, that mismatch. Like, what's going on here? And so finally, we got this strong law that all JFK records have to be made public. So here's what happened. Strong law, they create a, a JFK review board, which does a great job. They go to federal agencies, say, give us your JFK records. You know, federal agencies don't want to do it, but they have the authority under this law. And so they put out some 4 million pages of JFK records in the 1990s, a real contribution to history. So, but the law said agencies can withhold stuff if they want, you know, agent, uh, name of the, a source, that sort of thing, secret operations. But after 25 years, then everything should be made public. So that law was passed in 92. So 25 years later, October 2017, the question comes to Trump. And the CIA goes to Trump and they say, we want to keep all this stuff secret. And Trump does what Trump does. He gets on Twitter and he lies. He says all the JFK files have been released. Right. I remember that. Yeah. All the JFK files had not been released and they were not released ahead of time. So it was a double lie. So, so, so Trump gives them a four-year pass. Mm-hmm. That, that, sent, that kicks the can down the road. Biden gets the issue in October 2021. Right. The CIA and the FBI come forward and they say, the COVID dog ate my homework. Yes. We just couldn't get this stuff done. So Biden emits a weary sigh and gives them one more year. So now we're coming up on December 15th, the, Biden, the deadline that Biden set last year. So we will find out by next Thursday how many of these records are going to be made public? Well, let me ask you about that. You know, when I, when I was at the CIA, we were always taught that there were three holy of holies, right? Three things that you never, ever, ever talked about. That was sources and methods, liaison relationships, and anything having to do with NSA. So here we are 59 years plus after the Kennedy assassination. What could possibly be in these documents? to stop the government from declassifying them? I mean, my only explanation is sources and methods about Lee Harvey Oswald while right. JFK was still alive. That's the embarrassing thing that I think they're sitting on. And, you know, they probably don't know what to do. You know, I mean, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's very, well, I mean, they know the story. <laughs> you know, this is the thing, John. It's like, I mean, here's what I think. But you know what? I was in kindergarten when it happened. You know, like the CIA knows the story. <laughs> they could clear this up in a minute. You know, they could. <laughs> they could. Um, so, so you know, the Mary, I'm part of the Mary Farrell Foundation, which is the largest online collection of JFK assassination records um, and a real center of JFK research. And we sued Biden and the National Archives not because we want to give poor Joe a, another ha- headache. Because he's the only guy who can solve the problem. Yes. He's the only guy who literally and say, guys, give it up. Everything's public. Just don't worry about it. It's going to happen. 
American people are, you know, they can take it, whatever it is. Yeah, they did it with UFOs and, and the world didn't come crashing down on us. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, but what's the balance? You know, how's the CIA playing it? How's Biden playing it? You know, we don't know. I mean, we're hearing through the grapevine that the, the National Archives is pushing hard for more declassification. The agencies are, especially CIA, are dragging their feet. That's kind of anecdotal yeah. secondhand stuff, you know, but from people who are in the know. So, you know, my guess is that we'll, you know, we'll get half a loaf, you know, next week. We won't get the most important stuff. We'll get something. And then the, and the, the can will be kicked down the road a little, a little bit more. So, yeah, I'm curious how you see the relationship of these disclosures and the fight to make sure that everything with uh, within the JFK environment is released and how that sort of relates to other much needed disclosures. It's certainly not the only thing that I think the CIA could come forward with and, and release a little bit more. We have uh, things regarding MKUltra, MH Chaos. Uh, there's obviously uh, a trove of other Cointelpro um, uh, documents that still have yet to be released. Um, and then gen- just maybe general like political like uh, assassinations, like just uh, I- I'm curious, like what like how does this fight relay to uh, those other fights? Well, um, I, I, th- I think the, the big picture here is um the corrosive effects of covert actions. You know, this is why Harry Truman called for the abolition of the CIA Mm -hmm. a month after Kennedy was killed. It was like, it has this potential to get out of control that is always there. And now, you know, now after 60 years, you know, the CIA has impunity under our system. There's a weak system of oversight, but, you know, we can't... uh, we can't control it, and the only way that we can control it is by declassifying the past. So, you know, what the Kennedy assassination is one instance in an array of operations, which you mentioned, MH Chaos, which was spying on the anti-war movement, COINTELPRO, which was spying on domestic liberal and, and, and left-wing groups, um, MKUltra, which was the mind control experiments, you know. Those, this is a constellation of, the, of operations that were going on at the same time. So the, the Kennedy assassination is the most, you know, uh, dramatic maybe of those. You know, it's concentrated in one person in a, a spectacular crime, you know, mystifying circumstances, you know, and debate ever since then. So it's kind of like a, you know, it's a little more, it's more of a cultural icon, but it's all of these operations. And so, yeah, you know. We do need, you know, much more transparency. And that's what I look at this is, you know, people, I was just on um, Glenn Beck's show. And so, you know, of course, the first thing I had, isn't this just like Hunter Biden's laptop? Oh, no, no. <laughs> and I, I was like, Glenn, you know, <laughs> let's talk about something we agree about, not something we disagree about. I mean, you know, you have grievances about the CIA and the FBI today. You know, we can talk about those, but let's not mess up the Kennedy assassination with that stuff. So. That's, you know, kind of one thing I would say. And then the other thing I would say is, you know, this is a chance to, like, show that government can work. Government can establish its legitimacy. Government can be transparent. You know, uh, we can come to terms with the past. We can live with it. You know, the American people are, you know, they're big people. They can handle it, you know. And so, and we can get rid of the system of secrecy, which is, you know, 
look at the suspicion that the national security secrecy has bred in the in the you know in the body politics. You know, half the country you know now thinks the FBI is the tool of you know leftist yeah. and the enemy. And so, yeah. like crazy, well, yeah. So this is a chance to make the system work. That's how you know. Um, people have been appealing to Biden. It's like, and it's a winner politically, right? It is. So, um, and when we had a press conference earlier this week, our pollster had a new poll done after the midterms about attitudes on the JFK issue. And, um, you know, 70% of the people said Biden should release all of it now. And that was across all partisan categories, Republican, Democrat, and independent, 60 to 70%. So, you know, very solid public support. People disagree about the causes of the assassination. You know, most people, a bare majority, reject the official story. Um, 38, 39% believe it. So, but, you know, aside from that, you know, in general, everybody's in favor of this. So, so it's an interesting challenge for Biden's authority. You know, like, can Biden tell the CIA to do something they don't want to do? I mean, I'm sure he's loath to do that because he needs their help on other things. He doesn't want to piss them off, you know. But, you know, maybe he'll see that there's some, you know, positive gain um, from this. I don't know, you know, and I would say, frankly, you know, the people who are watching this closely, I don't think anybody knows. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I want to ask you, too, uh, if if this most recent information changes in any way your views about some of these other theories like perhaps um the the mafia was involved or the military or the russians the or teamsters the, the teamsters right is there any is there anything new out there to to give us pause and to make us rethink uh, what we believed we already knew yes absolutely i what what I'm talking about is the CIA's role in the JFK story, and that is more important than the role of any of the other. Yes, and certainly there's more information pointing to it. Yes. Um, you know, the mafia is not keeping these records secret, right? Right. The mafia doesn't have any secret powers. So <laughs> right. we know a lot about the mafia role, and the fact that Jack Ruby killed Lee Oswald is prima facie evidence of you know mafia involvement. That's right, yep. Yep. On November 22nd, um, uh, you know, I, I believe that I, the preponderance of evidence shows that Kennedy was killed by enemies in his own government, and they had the ability to make it look like something else. So that's people in the military and intelligence milieu. Now, you know, this operation to manipulate Oswald, that might have been emanated and controlled by the Pentagon, not by the CIA. So I'm not talking about like a CIA plot. I don't know where this operation goes. We don't know who was running. So, you know, if the Pentagon was running it, that would be very different than if, you know, Bill Harvey or Dick Helms were running. You know, so I I think that like, you know, I, I think like Truman, like Fidel Castro, like Charles de Gaulle, Kennedy was killed by enemies within his own government who had the ability to make it look like something else. Yeah, we were we were just talking about um, the the sort of like the the idea that perhaps the Soviets or the Cubans or some sort of like red menace um, uh, took took the opportunity to assassinate um, 
a a a person that they were on the on the uh, the the leader of the country that they were on basically the brink of nuclear disaster um like a year ago or a year or a year preceding um but in reality that's that's like that that's not really what the record shows you have fidel castro um going on air and politically uh, and talking um on his sort of tv programming saying um this is a very grim day for the world um we we need to like step up the invent uh, investigation um you have uh church bells tolling for jfk in moscow and across the soviet union because they saw it as a great a great loss and it's someone that they could have worked with no and and if you look at at castro's rhetoric towards kennedy you know, 61, Bay of Pigs, up to the missile crisis, you know, thief, bandit, Yankee aggressor, imperialist, that changes after the missile crisis. And Castro appreciates that Kennedy is beginning to, you know, make his peace with him. And and, and Castro sends feelers to Washington and says, you know, I'm open to talking. You know, like, you want to make a deal? And, you know, I think Kennedy was angling to Castro Send the Soviets home, and we'll and and we'll have diplomatic relations. And you can have your kind of left wing government down there, and we'll live in peace. That's what there's good evidence that that's what Kennedy was angling towards in 1963. And Castro's rhetoric was much more um, neutral about Kennedy in 1963. He felt that Kennedy was had showed real statesmanship in the missile crisis and could be you know could be worked with. So that's one thing. A second thing about you know Fidel Castro. The guy's a Marxist-Leninist. He doesn't think that individuals change history, right? He, he never favored assassination as a way of gaining power. He always said, you just kill that guy and the system remains the same. So can, Fidel Castro, as a Marxist-Leninist, would have never thought that killing JFK would solve his problems with the United States, because the United States was an imperialist, hegemonic, you know, Marxist-Leninist, you know, uh, demon, you know. So replacing one man, that is not the way Fidel Castro thought or ever thought. So that's why uh, the Castro did it, you know, theory and, and the KGB did it theory. I mean, they don't make sense at that larger level. And then at the micro level, there's not a lot of evidence in support of them. So that's where I think about that. Yeah, and in that vein, just very quickly, um, uh, there was uh, a released report um, by J. Edgar Hoover um, on December 2nd, 1966. Um, it's a communique to the White House uh, just uh, highlighting the reactions of the um, the Soviet Union, Cuba, and the CPUSA um, and their reaction and beliefs on to what actually went, uh, what occurred. Um, and essentially, uh, Gus Hall, the general secretary at the time, yeah. um, he informed one of the FBI sources who was an informant within the CP um, that the the idea that it, it, it likely was done by no one other than the ultra right within uh uh, the halls of power um, and that Oswald was killed by the ultra right in order to prevent him from talking. Um, and that, and, and so I think that that also sort of the, the exist pre-existing releases also sort of nod that way. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, uh, an interesting thing, intelligence agencies that assessed what happened on in, in Dallas. Okay. Um, the French intelligence agency assessed and, and and saw the work of a, a right-wing power struggle um, led by um, military-industrial complex, basically. 
Um, the Israelis um, didn't study the politics of the crime so much as the forensics, and they tried to recreate the, the shots that Oswald allegedly fired. You know, and the Mossad could never satisfy itself that it was po- that the official story was possible. So that was another intelligence agency finding. And the Cubans, who had the most at stake, um, you know, they saw a plot emanating from CIA and Cuban exiles, and you know, they they reported on you know hundreds of you know CIA-funded Cuban exiles turn up in the course of all the various JFK investigations. So you know, the milieu in which Kennedy was killed was thick with CIA-funded Cubans, no doubt about it. Yeah, yeah, I, I know um, Fabian Escalante, who was the director of the Cuban um, intelligence at the time. Um, he wrote uh, the book, The Cuba Files, The Untold Story of the Plot to Kill Kennedy. And he sort of outlines that for, for further reading. Yeah, I, I, I spent some time with Escalante in Havana about 10 years ago. And um, yeah, and, you know, he described all of their, you know, what, how, how they investigated, how they collected it. Unfortunately, at that time, he was out of the government, and he was like, "Jeff, I can't help you. You know, I have no access to the files either. You know, you have to go to the foreign ministry, who, of course, said, you know, get lost. They're not going to show anything to an American." Um, and but yeah, you know, he said that, that that was very much what they said, and he told a very interesting story. Um, you know, I'm not saying this is true, but this is the kind of story that coming from this kind of source is very credible, which was. There was a guy who was um, a, a anti-Castro guy named Tony Cuesta, who led a raid, a commando raid, a terror raid on Cuba in 1966. And a bunch of his guys were killed. The Cubans intercepted them right as they hit the beach. And so a bunch of his guys were killed. Cuesta was blinded when a grenade went off. So the, the Cubans took him to the hospital and put him in the hospital, and they questioned him, you know, what, what were you doing? What was going on? So. Cuesta is blind. He just talked right away. He didn't, you know, and so he told them, and one of the things that he told them was that he believed that one of the guys who was killed in that raid was a Dewey Plaza gunman. And that was a guy named Erminio Diaz, who had been a bodyguard to Batista and who was known as a, an ace, you know, marksman, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 a dead deadly accurate shooter and hated um, Castro. And in fact, the point of the raid had been to get Arminio Diaz into Cuba so that he could go kill Castro. It was that simple. <laughs> and so um, uh, Cuesta said, you know, he, he had no independent knowledge of it, but that's what people said about Arminio Diaz and Tony Cuesta believed it. And Escalante said, you know, we, he was pretty credible. You know, we believed it too. We weren't sure that he, he was it. But these guys who knew him well and liked him, you know, uh, said it. So um, that's a very interesting story about, you know, like, will we ever know? I'm not sure we will, but there was, you know, that, that's pretty high quality testimony. You have to take that seriously. You can't just dismiss that. You know, that's uh, an interesting thing to note. Yeah, it is indeed. Uh, there's going to be a lot more of this coming out, I think, in the in the coming uh, month and uh, and perhaps in the not too terribly distant future after that, as uh, the government finally, I hope, inevitably decides to declassify what it's supposed to declassify. Jeff, tell us where our uh, listeners and viewers can uh, 
Oh, well, actually, sorry. I You've had got one another more question. question. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, if you don't mind, Jeff. Um, so I, we were kind of getting to it a little bit before that, um, that uh, beat, but uh, there's, there's a lot of talks about American democracy these days, um, a separate conversation about the so-called deep state. I personally feel that just, that's just aspects of the state um, yeah. that have always existed, but with less checks, less accountability, and less democratic control. Um, I'm in my mid mid twenties. I've never truly experienced the sort of cold warrior mentality. I know, like I hear a lot of people, maybe even five years older than me, knowing the sort of duck and cover, um, uh, sort of uh, uh, reaction um, and the, the the things that they instill in in grade school. Um, but still, uh, the the interest surrounding the JFK assassination remains um, very present among American culture, um, I, it, it, there may be a case that it's increased um, with uh, my generation and uh, even younger generations. Um, so why, after nearly 60 years, uh, do you think this event captivates the American psyche so much? Um, how does it relate to the current conversation about, as you know, the, the Post would frame it, democracy dying in darkness? Yeah, um, I mean, really good questions. I'm not not easy to you know to answer. Um, All right. <laughs> you know, how, how how does it relate to today? I, I, I I would put it this way. You know, when Kennedy's assassination happened in 1963, the, the CIA was 16 years old. Okay, and the CIA was 16 years old. And really, you know, after there was no real investigation of the CIA's role, the role of CIA officers in the event that led to the assassination. No one, no one at the CIA lost their job. You know, despite this That's astonishing, right. astonishing counterintelligence failure, a guy who had been in the Soviet Union, a guy who had threatened to turn over military secrets, a guy who was a known leftist. You know, it, it was it was it was hard to believe, and you know, and people didn't believe it from the start. But the CIA had impunity after that, and so, you know, so to a certain extent, you know, that Cold War mentality. This is a secret war. We can do whatever we want because we're the good guys and we're going to win. You know, um, that's what that attitude had impunity. And that had a huge effect in the long run. We had a little bit of a correction in the, when the church committee came and the CIA was called on the carpet for the first time and their budget was cut and their operations were cut back. And, you know, they really had to, they really had to modify and, do business in a different way, but our oversight system that was established then with the House and Senate Intelligence Committee, it's really very weak. The CIA still enjoys that impunity. Um, and, you know, these agencies have lost the confidence of a lot of Americans. You know, now, now a lot of people on the right think the CIA and the FBI are the enemies of America. Well, you know, how did that happen? You know, they squandered their credibility. And so, Part of why this story is important is like the government needs to regain credibility, and this is a way to do it, you know. Um, and it's going to be painful for the powers that be, you know. It's not something easy for the CIA to, to cough up this story. Oh yeah. Um, so so, but the you know, I don't want to get drawn into a you know a polemic about you know isn't this just like the CIA covering up Hunter Biden's laptop? <laughs> right. <laughs> You know, uh, you know, okay, uh, that's fine. You know, I, I, I think it was a bad idea to censor that story. You know, like, that's fine. I'm not going to get into a big argument about that. No. You know, 
the, the business associations of the president's son, the current president's son, that's a story. Okay, that's fine. That's a fair topic for debate. Let's talk sure. about that. The assassination of the president 60 years ago, that's a very different topic. And so let's not mix the two, you know. But I think that the point is not so not to get involved in that partisan, you know, deep state discourse. I mean, we can talk about, yeah, we can talk about is there a kind of deep state that has resisted accountability over the, you know, over the last 60 years? Yeah, that's, you know, that's fair. Is there a deep state that's out to get President Trump and JFK Jr. is going to come back on the, the grassy knoll? You know, that's not so, you know, like I'm, I'm, we're, I'm not going there. I'm, I, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something very important. So and something that people are interested in and care about, you know, and I'm 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 very fascinated to hear that, you know, young people are aware of this story and think about it. Because sometimes they think, you know, it's a baby boomer niche of, you know, old. Oh, no, 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 no. This is big news. Yeah, big news, and you've you've devoted a career to it. Actually, that was my last question. Where can people read more about the work that that you're doing specifically? So, um, JFK Facts is my blog on Substack. So, JFKFacts.substack.com. Uh, you can subscribe for free and get a lot of the content, or you can um, pay a little bit and get all of it. Um, so, yeah, we have a podcast, and that's where I that's where I do my JFK reporting, if, you know, this story that we, yes. we press conference, you can watch the press conference uh, on at jfkfacts.substack.com. You can see the presentation that I made and the comments by Ralph Mowat Larson, a former CIA officer. Oh, sure. Highly respected. Yeah. Um, and uh, Judge Tonheim, former chair of the Assassination Records Review Board, spoke um, so a really, and then there's a, a then Fernando Mondi um, gives the results of this very interesting JFK poll about what people still think. And I especially, you know, if you're interested in like generational breakdowns and racial and regional and ethnic breakdowns in the JFK story, there's a very big, high quality poll, and you can really see kind of the contours of public opinion, you know, around the issue. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot there, jfkfacts.substack.com. You can see the press conference. You can see some of my reporting about the sort of the sources and methods around Oswald. That's kind of the, that's what I'm reporting on. Fantastic. What a pleasure it was to be joined by Jefferson Morley. Jeff is a journalist, author, and the editor of the, J, the JFK Facts blog. His latest book is Scorpion's Dance, The President, The Spymaster, and Watergate. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take one more short break and come back. Stay tuned. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Ben Zinovich. There are a lot of stories uh, out there today. There was one that has really, really bothered me. It wasn't necessarily appropriate for a, you know, a, a guest, but it was something that I wanted to raise. There is an assassin out there for the Sinaloa drug cartel by the name of Edgar Valdez Villarreal. Uh, he goes by the nickname La Barbie. La Barbie was 
captured in a safe house, a Sinaloa cartel safe house outside of Mexico City several years ago. He was extradited to the United States and he was convicted on a whole bunch of crimes, mostly related to murder and sentenced to 49 years in prison at USP Coleman. That stands for United States Penitentiary Coleman. It is one of the highest security, maximum security penitentiaries in America. The reason why LaBarbie is so important and so well known is that he was known for being an exceptionally cruel murderer. He was El Chapo's favorite executioner uh, because when he was assigned to kill someone, he would videotape the torture session that preceded the murder. And then he was partial to beheading his victims. So this is a sick, violent son of a gun. Yeah. Right? So he's, he's 49 years old, born in Laredo, Texas, 1973, got a wife and kids. And, um, and on Tuesday, he just disappeared from the Bureau of Prisons uh, website. Now, you can go to um, BOP.gov, click uh, Inmate Locator, and type in somebody's name, and you can see where they are and when their expected release date is. Well, his release date is like 2056, and that's factoring in good behavior time, which is 15% of your sentence. On Tuesday, he just disappeared from the system. Today, if you type in his name, again, it's Edgar Valdez Villarreal, it just says not in BOP custody. So somebody noticed this on Tuesday and went to the media about it. The story spread quickly, and the president of Mexico, uh, in a press conference, on uh, Wednesday, said that the U.S. government has to respond to these questions. Where is he? You can't just disappear from a maximum security penitentiary and then just have some secretary at the BOP type in, oh, not in BOP custody anymore, like it's no big deal. So journalists asked the Bureau of Prisons yesterday, what does it mean when it says not in BOP custody next to next to a prisoner's name on the website. And the answer is what you would expect from a low to mid-level government bureaucrat spokesman. The BOP spokesman said, oh, it could mean a lot of things. It could mean he was released. It could mean he was taken to a hospital and so is now in the custody of the hospital, which is nonsense. At that level, if, if you're in a maximum security penitentiary and you need hospitalization, you're then sent to the maximum security prison hospital at Butner, North Carolina or Springfield, Missouri. You don't just, they don't just open the door and say, oh, we're going to take you to the local hospital. We'll just put a handcuff on your ankle. Well, and I would also just uh, pair this with the treatment of other um, inmates at Coleman, um, notably Leonard Peltier, a Good political point. prisoner um, who has been denied a lot of medical care. That's right. Um, has been and has a significant heart malady. Mm -hmm, suffered COVID complications um, and is still still seeking release after um, there's really no uh, no hard evidence that he committed the crime that he's in there for. That's right. Zero. Yeah. In fact, 
the two FBI agents, not to get too far yeah. off, off topic, but the two FBI agents who testified against Leonard Pelletier in his trial have since recanted their testimony and have admitted that Leonard Pelletier was not the person who fired the shots that killed two other FBI agents. So getting back to LaBarbie, uh, the BOP just simply will not say where he is. Now, one of the other possibilities besides being uh, uh, in a hospital, which he's not, I would stake my reputation on it, is that he has turned rat. He's turned rat and he's flipped. Now, on whom, I have no idea. And his information is likely dated, but he may have flipped. And the other possibility is that he has been transferred to the custody of another agency. That doesn't make any sense because the Bureau of Prisons is the only agency that has the mandate to incarcerate federal prisoners. This, this bears watching. There were, there were pieces today at MSNBC, Fox News, New York Post. The British press has picked it up. Um, I'm seeing a piece at, uh, at CNN, drug lord LaBarbi, not currently in federal custody, uh, the Daily Mail. Yeah, I was wondering, has, like, what's the precedent for this? Like, I, not, I, I know well, that people are maybe disappeared or mm-hmm. like they, they are taken care of. Well, the easiest, the easiest comparison is with uh, mafia leaders, high level mafia leaders that end up flipping on those around them, like Sammy the Bull Gravano. But even then, they either, they either will keep them incarcerated, but in solitary confinement. Like Sammy the Bull, for example, got essentially an apartment. It happened to be inside a prison in a... In they were a cutting wing. garlic very... Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You're making spaghetti. I told you I gained 35 pounds with those guys. You eat well. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, you've got your own TV. You've got a little kitchen. You've got your bed. You can have visitors. It's, it's like not even being in prison. Yeah. Or they never put you into the system in the first place. Uh, for example, Henry Hill from Goodfellas. Uh, Henry Hill was in prison a number of times, but you couldn't go to BOP.gov and type in Henry Hill and, you know, write him a letter. It just, you put in Henry Hill and it just says, you know, person not known. So this is a real mystery. And like I said, the Mexican government is demanding an explanation. Yeah, it's worth keeping an eye on, um, especially it, it has international implications. I mean, this is a, oh, yes, this it does. Is a large country on our border that is wondering yeah, if Where they can trust man? us on extraditions. Yeah. You know, we beat the Mexicans up on extraditions. They, they don't want to extradite people to us, but because we're bigger and stronger and meaner and tougher and angrier than they are, they do it. Okay, so now what? Now we're just going to play games with them? The BOP has to explain itself. And it is Friday. And because it's Friday, that means it's time for News of the Weird where we will bring you some of the more offbeat stories in the news. Today, we're going to begin in Thailand. You know, these News of the Weird segments, I I collect them all week long, and some of them are funny, and some of them are not funny, but they're weird. And I try to... We ask. (laughs) Yeah. I try to leave out the not-so-funny ones, just because it should be weird and funny and still newsworthy, but here's one. Apparently, spiritual Zen wasn't enough for Buddhist monks at two small temples in northern Thailand. This is according to the Washington Post. As part of an investigation into drug abuse in the Pechabun province, officials visited the monasteries on November 25th. They discovered 
that every single one of the monks, including the abbot, tested positive for meth. They were all smoking meth. Every single one of the monks and the abbot. Quote, I was frightened because I never thought the monks would be addicted to drugs, said Sungyat Nambori, the village headman. But the monks' behavior gave them away. Quote, when I inspected the abbot's shelter, I was stunned because it was a mess. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess, you know, the, these these declarations of poverty and, you know, they have all their acts together and. and yeah. Yeah. You simple life. To, yeah. Simple <laughs> life. Right. Yeah. Right. Very austere. The monks were forced to leave the monkhood and they're all now currently all of them are enrolled in rehab. That's good. That's, the temples are empty. That's I mean, that's sad, but it is good that they're getting help. I, yes, it's good that they're getting help. I feel a little sorry for them. Of course. You know, it takes a special person to be a monk. No matter what the religion is, you can be pretty much a monk or monk-like person in a whole bunch of different religions. It takes a special person to be an ascetic like that. Yeah, no, and, I think it, it, you know, it's a shame. I Like people, obviously, maybe they have like a Western sort of like, haha, like these people, right. it's funny, whatever. Um, but it is sort of, it is a sad thing. Yeah. Like this, I mean, the... I mean, I even think of like the implications of like that area and what that does to like the faithful community there and what that does to the greater culture. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Agreed. Agreed. OK, moving over to Wyoming, the Cowboy State Daily, which is actually a thing. It's a newspaper. The Cowboy State Daily reported that Vern and Shireen Liebel are hoping to make a move to Wyoming. I've been to Wyoming. It's it's an amazing place. I'd love to go. It's it's stunning. It's so beautiful. I, I'm not sure I could live in a state that's, you know, 77 percent Republican, but but it's a gorgeous place. Says here, uh, the Liebels want to move to Wyoming with one very particular criterion dictating which city they end up deciding to choose. They want to move to the city in Wyoming that has the best public library. Yeah, the Liebels have been traversing Wyoming, visiting all of the libraries. For the last three and a half months, hoping to see every library that the state of Wyoming has to offer. There have been a few standouts, they say, along the way. In Glen Rock, Wyoming, Vern said, quote, they have these skylights up there and it's like blonde wood and it just feels so light and airy, unquote. He also loved the name of the library in Ranchester, Wyoming. It's called the Tongue River Library. His infatuation with libraries also extends to bookstores. He says, I think that one of the finest smells in the world is to go into an old bookstore and just inhale the essence of the paper. I agree. I agree. Yeah. I just hate that. Yeah. I, I mean, who doesn't love going to second story books in uh, DuPont Circle? Mm, and then yeah. there's their warehouse is like 20 times the size. It's yeah. in Rockville. It's an amazing place. I haven't made it out there, but. Pretty, pretty great. There's another story, this one from Florida, because we can't do one of these News of the Weirds without referencing Florida. Amanda Ramirez of Hialeah, Florida, filed a class action lawsuit against Kraft Heinz Foods Company a couple of weeks ago. She's asking for $5 million. I actually saw this on CNN. Her complaint, she made a Velveeta microwavable shells and cheese dinner. And she said that the instructions indicate that the dish is ready in three and a half minutes. But her complaint says that this is false and misleading because the product takes longer than three and a half minutes to prepare. The suit goes on to say that the three and a half minutes are merely the time needed for microwaving the product, 
which is just one of several steps, right? Because you've got to put water in it, and then you have to push the buttons on the microwave. And then once it's microwaved for three and a half minutes, it has to sit for a minute to cool and to finish cooking. So that is worth $5 million to her. A million a minute. A million dollars a minute. Kraft Heinz told Fox Business Channel that the suit is frivolous and that they will strongly defend against the allegations in the complaint. I have no, no doubt that that's true. I, I mean, I always now, knowing that... Um... There was that whole infamous uh, hot coffee McDonald's. But that was actually a real case. No, exactly. I always, because I now know that that was sort of a serious case. Yeah, that poor woman, third degree burns. She mutilated her her genitals. And the the, the media made a mockery of her. Yes, they Um, sure did. So I always kind of look, whenever I see like a sort of uh, consumer class action lawsuit or anything like that, it seems sort of frivolous in the media. I always try to give a... Uh, a, a deeper look. Yeah, <laughs> this to, one. This one seems the, frivolous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, another thing I also saw, just I, thinking of that, I got an ad for Heinz uh, the other day or something, and they're now like they have this weird campaign where if they if the restaurant doesn't have Heinz, like leave a dollar tip and say next time include <gasps> Heinz or whatever. Shame on them! And, like it's the waitress and waiter's fault. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, you, they give, you give another dollar to the server. Like, oh, an extra dollar. Yeah, being like, next time, like, give okay. me Heinz or whatever. And you're supposed oh, to, like, promote then. it on social media. And oh, for if they, I think it's like, if you, if you do it, then you get, like, a lifetime <laughs> oh, amount God. of ketchup. Oh, my God. How about this one? Right-wing television host Karen Turk yesterday blasted President Joe Biden's administration after WNBA star Brittany Griner was released from a Russian prison. But some January 6th rioters remain behind bars. Turk seemed shocked on the Real America's Voice Network morning broadcast as news broke that Griner had been traded for Russian arms dealer Victor Boot. She says, wait a minute. You knew what the laws were in that country and you chose to smuggle in marijuana in your bag and we are trading an arms dealer for you? What? What's happening? Uh, She complained that Griner would be celebrated upon her return to the United States. Quote, they're going to make her into some kind of American hero. She's going to get the front page of Vanity Fair and she's going to get all dressed up and then she's going to be on the cover cover of Vogue. Mark my words, that's going to happen. Her co-host Ed Henry then noted that viewers were calling in, I never heard of this network, by the way, calling in to release all the J6ers. Turk agreed. It's sad, she said. You think about all these people, these Americans who are just sitting in jail in a gulag. She means the D.C. jail. She's calling it a gulag. And we're releasing, you know, this entitled spoiled brat that went to a foreign country and broke a law. Uh, Turk has her own experience in prison. She served a month in jail in 2020 after being convicted of stealing her dying mother's Social Security checks. Yeah, yeah. I, like, I, nice. come on, like, nice. is, uh, the the way that I think the the right has sort of suddenly turned overnight into like prison abolitionists by saying, well, what about this person? Right. What about this person? Right. Meanwhile, no, again, not to reinsert the Leonard Peltier, Julian <laughs> Assange, uh, all the Mumia Abu Jamal. Right. There's plenty of people that are oh, in yeah. prison that for the wrong. Be. Like, yeah, yeah. that shouldn't be. But um, typically, it's uh, used in in a different way. <laughs> yes. 
this sort of call. Do you remember a week or two ago, we talked about um, a person by the name of Sam Britton. Uh, he's non-binary or they're non-binary uh, working as assistant secretary of the like, Department of Energy's Office of Nuclear Energy. Okay. So Sam Britton was arrested a couple of weeks ago for stealing uh, a high-end uh, suitcase, right? Yeah, Vera Bradley. Vera Bradley, right. Vera Bradley suitcase, it was worth between $1,200 and $5,000. Um, they denied it. They said that they had accidentally picked up this suitcase, even though it bore literally zero resemblance to their own suitcase. Well, it turns out that Sam Britton has stolen another suitcase, another well, this one is worth $2,325 and has some other ladies' belongings in it. As it So, <laughs> yeah, Britain, Britain now initially denied taking the luggage, but later claimed they mistook it for their own bag at baggage claim. Uh, we've heard that song and dance before. So uh, they've been suspended from the Department of Energy. Uh, there was a statement. That a, that a Republican congressman made, we demand the resignation of Sam Britton and we implore you, this is to the president, to set aside petty politics and appoint only the most qualified and dedicated individuals to influence America's energy section, section or sector rather. Sam Britton has a problem, right? It's, it's one thing to, um, it's one thing to, uh, you know, steal people's, to steal, but you're stealing other people's luggage and their clothes and just it's being just a too weird. Yeah. We're running short on time. So I'm going to say real quickly, one other story. Uh, oh, no, there is no other story. We're out of time. Wow. Well, thank you. Thank you to Saul. Thank you to Ben. Thank you to Michelle all week. The Sputnik News team. It's Friday, so we have the weekend off. We appreciate you listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. And we will join with you again on Monday with a whole bunch of news. Bye-bye. <laughs> 